John chapter 18. We're going to move ahead a little bit. This morning we'll be looking at verses 33 through 40. As you're turning there, I wanted to pass along just a praise report regarding my daughter Emma. Uh, we've, the Lord's blessed us with several good weeks. Her level of alertness is continuing to increase. Uh, her eyes opening and her response time is quicker. Her yeses and noes very clear. Yesterday we had an extended Zoom call with members of our extended family, some of which we haven't seen for a year. And she was awake through the whole call and very responsive. So it was just a very encouraging day in that. So continue to lift Emma up. We pray believing that God is healing her. And do not doubt that. So I bring your attention now to John 18, 33 through 40. I know we've moved forward quite a bit, and we'll fill in those gaps in just a moment. But for right now, let's focus on this meeting. This meeting of the ages between the governor, Pilate, and this Nazarene named Jesus, who is accused of treason. Starting at verse 33. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord, or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priest have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. Then Pilate said to him, So you are a king. Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, What is truth? After he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him. But you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? They cried out again, Not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. Would you please bow with me in prayer? Oh Lord, I just thank you this morning for the glorious hope of the glory that awaits. Even as the ensemble was singing, my heart was crying out to you, Maranatha, come quickly, Lord Jesus. And Lord, we believe firmly you will return one day. We ask you until then, Father, that you would help us to be faithful and true ambassadors for your kingdom. Help us to live for your glory. And grant, Father, that through the power of your Spirit, the world will come to know and understand the kingdom of God. We pray this to God's glory. Amen. In the 20th century, whenever a trial of some notoriety was on the horizon, it would have the phrase, trial of the century, 
affixed to it. Now this phrase, the trial of the century, has a bit of hyperbole and it is certainly used to draw importance to the case and to certainly highlight the celebrity nature of whatever the case may be. But I was just curious to, to see what are the trials of the century that took place in the 20th century? I began comparing lists, going to historylist.com and Britannica.com, the extension of the Encyclopedia Britannica, and found some agreed-upon trials that met the moniker Trial of the Century. There were three that stood out to me. The first occurred in 1925 in Dayton, Tennessee. Anyone try for double jeopardy here? The Scopes Monkey Trial, absolutely, when John Scopes was put on trial for teaching the theory of evolution. Another trial that was agreed upon as being a trial of some significance took place in 1970 and 71. I was but a wee lad of one when Charles Manson was tried for the horrific murders that took place in 1969 in Hollywood, California. You'll have no trouble guessing the third trial of the century that was recognized by both lists because it took place in 1995 and in fact it's still talked about today. Anyone want to venture a guess? The trial of O.J., absolutely. And even as famous or infamous as those trials may be, they don't hold a candle to this moment when this man from Galilee stood before a Roman governor accused of treason. Now a lot has happened since Jesus finished praying in the upper room. According to the Bible, when Jesus finished praying with his disciples, they got up, they left, went across the Kidron Valley into the Garden of Gethsemane. Doing this was not uncommon for Jesus. Apparently, whenever he and his followers were in Jerusalem, they would make their way to this garden where Jesus would spend time in prayer. In fact, it was this familiar practice that made it all too easy for Judas to lead the band of soldiers to Jesus. They burst in on the prayer time. They arrest Jesus, place him in handcuffs, and drag him away to the residence of Annas. Annas was a religious leader, perhaps the religious leader of the Pharisees. He's the man that had said earlier in the gospel as the Pharisees were debating Jesus. He's the one that said, it is better for one man to die, referring to Jesus, than the whole nation, that is all the Jews, be repressed more by the Roman government. In other words, Annas had already begun planting the seeds for the death of Jesus. So now, as they gather at the house of Annas, not only Jesus and the disciples Peter and John who are following at a, at a distance, the Sanhedrin are also there where they question Jesus and then abuse him physically. It was in the courtyard of Annas that Peter denied Jesus three times. The Sanhedrin's in agreement. Jesus must die. He's committed blasphemy by claiming to be God. The only solution is his death. However, they cannot carry out a capital execution. Only Rome can do that. Therefore, they need to have Rome declare Jesus guilty. Well, what can he, they declare Jesus guilty of? Well, Jesus claimed to be a king. 
That's seditious action against Rome. So they bring Jesus to the Roman governor, Pilate. History tells us a few things about Pilate. He was a career politician. and He was ruthless. He was a man really of no principle, only, I should say, the principle of survival. He would compromise based upon whichever way the wind was blowing out of Rome based upon the Caesar. He was also cruel. According to Luke chapter 13, he had executed a group of Galileans who had come to worship at the temple. And now Jesus stands before him accused of treason, charged with claiming to be king. And as Pilate adjudicates this case, Pilate is both judge and jury. That's why he begins questioning Jesus in verse 33. He puts the charge to Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus responds with a question. It always amazes me how Jesus responds to those who question him. Whenever they think they've got Jesus in a corner, he turns the table, so to speak. He answers with a question to put Pilate's heart on trial. Verse 34, Pilate, are you saying this of your own accord? In other words, are you curious, Pilate? Or did others say this to you about me? In other words, are you simply mimicking what you've heard or are you really curious about who I am? So Pilate answers with a level of derision. Am I a Jew? Basically, Pilate's saying, I really don't care what the Jewish people think of you. However, your own nation and your chief priest have brought you to me claiming you're treasonous. So what have you done? What have you done to, to deserve this? So Jesus answers. My kingdom's not of this world. His answer is really an answer without giving a clear definitive statement that he's king. But Pilate's no idiot. He draws the conclusion. So you are a king. But notice what Jesus said about his kingdom in verse 36. It's not of this world. It's not a political entity. It's something that is far greater. And he goes on to explain in verse 37 that his kingdom is about the truth. He says, you say that I'm a king, and for this purpose I was born, for this purpose I came to bear witness to the truth. What is that truth? That Jesus is a king. And then the answer of Pilate has echoed through the ages. What is truth? The tragic nature of this event is that Pilate never waited for an answer. Pages drip with irony. Here is the truth standing before Pilate. Pilate dares to ask what is truth and then he leaves. And seeking to find a way out that can both satisfy his superiors in the Roman bureaucracy as well as the Jews, he offers to release Jesus. But the people cry out, not this man, but Barabbas. During this trial, there are two truths that take center stage. Kingdom and truth. And the two are connected. The kingdom of Jesus is the kingdom of truth. It's because Jesus never lies. God never lies. In fact, Hebrews 6 states, it is impossible for God to lie. James 1.17 God never changes. 
So as Jesus begins describing his kingdom, he begins by describing what it is not. Two times in verse 36, excuse me, at the beginning and the end, Jesus makes the statement, my kingdom is not of this world. My kingdom is not from this world. He is removing the possibility of any offense that he is seeking to subjugate Rome to another political entity. But at the same time, he is stating a definite fact that his kingdom is above this world, beyond this world, greater than any kingdom of this world because it does not originate here. And because the kingdom of God does not originate from this world, this world does not give it any authority. We must understand that because the kingdom of God is not from this world, it does not share the same values of this world. And we who are part of the kingdom of God, therefore, will stand out in the midst of this world because we will not share the same values. In fact, we will be at odds with the world around us. We need to think opposite of the world around us. Thinking opposite is one of the strange attractions of the game of golf. If you want to hit it harder, relax and hit it easier. If the ball's going to the right, it's because your club head's coming across it to the left. It's opposites. You have to think opposites. We need to apply that same thinking to the world. This is exactly what I mean. The kingdom of the world says, fight fire with fire. Do unto them before they do unto you. The kingdom of God says, turn the other cheek. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. The kingdom of the world says, attack your enemies. Belittle them, mock them, do whatever you have to do to put them in their place. The kingdom of God says, love your enemies. Pray for those that persecute you. Let your goodness be evident to them. The kingdom of the world says, the end justifies the means. Whatever you have to do to get the desired outcome, do it. The kingdom of God says, who you are and what you do matters. It's not just about the outcome. And since the kingdom of God is not of this world and it is opposite, contrary to the world, it will stand in judgment over the world. And it will do so because it is the kingdom of truth. Notice in verse 37, Jesus moves to emphasize this. He says, the incarnation, I came into this world for one purpose, to bear witness to the truth. Then he repeats what was said in John chapter 10 where he said, the good shepherd speaks to the sheep and the sheep hear his voice. Those who are of the truth, listen to my voice. Now, when Pilate responds to this statement of truth, what is truth? Believe me, it is much more than a philosophical statement. Whether you and I spend time reflecting on the nature of truth, reflecting on the definition of truth, the fact is that you and I make decisions every day based on what we believe to be true. The Greeks defined truth as an accurate perspective on reality. The Romans define truth as that which is the factual representation of events. But the Hebrews went a completely different direction. To the Hebrews, God's chosen people, truth was God's faithfulness. Truth is rooted in the actions and the being of God. We cannot know truth apart from God. Therefore, truth is reality as defined by God. 
three things come together in that brief statement. Tr truth is reality defined by God. The first is revelation. God reveals truth to us. He did so ultimately in Jesus Christ. And in fact, the Gospel of John emphasizes truth. That is one of the overarching themes of the Gospel of John, truth. He begins two times in John chapter 1 that Jesus is full of grace and truth. Grace and truth come through Jesus. John chapter 4, worship must take place in spirit and truth. Jesus tells us that the devil is the father of lies, but what? He speaks truth. John 14, the Holy Spirit is the spirit of truth. Now as God reveals truth, He has given us minds to comprehend that truth. Reason. But here's the problem. Our reason, our ability to reason has been compromised by sin. So that what we often think is factual may not be factual because our reasoning is faulty give you many examples where I've proven this true in my life. One came to mind when my daughter Emma was in middle school and started playing volleyball. They had so many girls come out for the team, they made two teams, a burgundy team and a gold team. But the coach assured us at the beginning of the season, every girl will play. They were having a double header that night and we thought Emma was going to be playing on the gold team and when we looked up, she was seated on the bench with the burgundy team. And we were like, hey, Emma's going to be playing in this one. All right. And we sat there watching the match. Emma stayed on the bench. Girls were substituted in and out. Emma was on the bench. And I felt that level of redneckness within me rising. What's all this about everybody getting in the game? What's going on here? And as the match is going on, I leaned to Jody and I said, something's going on. I'm going to have a word with that coach. And thank God for godly, wise wives who said, just calm down and wait. Don't, just wait. Okay, I'll wait. But this, oh, you know. Emma comes up to us and sits down after the game. And I said, Emma, I've got to ask you a question. I noticed you were on the bench and never got in the game. What was going on? And she said, Dad, I, I decided to go ahead and dress out and just sit on the bench with the team to encourage them. Thank you, God, for intervening. Because what I thought was true wasn't true at all. I needed to have my understanding enlightened. That's what the Holy Spirit does. We make these assumptions about what is true and then the Holy Spirit comes to guide us and God has given us not only the Spirit to guide our reason but He's given us a means to verify the truth. The Bible is the standard of truth. It reveals to us who Jesus is and Jesus shows us what it looks like to live in the truth. Now, we've established that Jesus came to bear witness to the truth. He is truth incarnate. But notice Jesus didn't just come giving propositional statements about truth. A propositional statement is something like God is love or thou shall not commit adultery, thou shall not lie. Those are propositional statements. But what Jesus did was to show us what it looks like to put those truths into practice. To live graciously and compassionately and truthfully. And what that means is that you and I must come to the scripture with humility. Or we will end up using the Bible to serve our agenda rather than us serving the scripture. You see for many people Jesus and the Bible are used like an ink blot test. 
You can see in Jesus whatever you want to see. So, you know what? If you need strength and power, focus on the Jesus who turned over the tables in the temple. But if you need compassion, focus on Jesus who told the kids, come. The kingdom of heaven belongs to these. Come here and sit here. We must have the humility to remember that everything Jesus did was to serve and to teach about the kingdom of God. Every action, every miracle, every word spoken was to show us the kingdom. So we cannot isolate events from the whole. Doing so distorts who Jesus is and blurs the truth about the kingdom. So what do we do? I recognize that up to this point, much of this sermon has been theoretical and maybe even philosophical. But, but what do you do with this statement, my kingdom is not of this world and I came to manifest the truth? I'd like to give you three things to carry away from this. First, because Jesus' kingdom is not of this world, we must make sharing the gospel a priority. For many people today in America, both inside and outside the church, Evangelical Christianity has become only a conservative political movement concerned with worldly power. That's how the church is viewed by, by many. And in our zeal for cultural change, we have fed this idea because we have begun to focus more on legislative change than we have sharing the gospel. I would ask yourself to take this little question of, of ratio to heart. What is the ratio in your life of political talk compared to gospel talk? How much effort do you give to discussing politics than how much do you give to discussing and presenting the gospel? How often do we discuss politics and how often do we talk about the gospel? What does it say about our priorities if we're talking more about the political situation of our nation than we are talking about the death of and the resurrection of Jesus. Jesus emphasized that his kingdom was not of this world. If it were so, he said in verse 37 or verse 36, his followers would have been fighting. In fact, what I didn't mention is that in John 18, when they came to arrest Jesus, Peter, God bless Peter. Peter takes out his sword, cuts off the ear of a servant of the high priest, a, a man by the name of Malchus. This kid's ear is laying on the ground. He's bleeding. And Jesus looks at Peter and says, Peter, put your sword up. And he reaches down and he picks up the ear of Malchus and he hears one of the men who came, heals one of the men who came to arrest him. He says, if my servants wanted to fight, they would have engaged in battle. And I find it very interesting that this narrative ends with what I think is a warning. Pilate thinks he's found the way out. I'll give you Jesus. I'll release him at the Passover. But what do the people cry out? Not Jesus, but Barabbas. Now, you may notice that at the, in the English Standard Version, verse 40 ends with the, word, the phrase, Barabbas was a robber. But there is a, a footnote there. The word robber there can also be translated insurrectionist. Barabbas was a man that had led political revolt. Why would the people choose him over Jesus? Could it be that they felt like at this time and place the quickest way to get action was through an insurrectionist rather than trusting Jesus and believing the teaching of the kingdom of God? We must be careful that we give priority to sharing the gospel. 
Second thing is this. We must be a people that are committed to seeking the truth. Those who are part of the kingdom of truth must be people who seek the truth. In our culture, in our informational digital age, the problem is is that we often define truth based on what agrees with our position. If it agrees with me, it's got to be truth. We often bemoan today the cancel culture. No doubt you've seen it in the news. This person is canceled because of something they said. But you know where the cancel culture begins? It begins on our smartphones. No doubt if you have a smartphone, you probably have apps, you probably have news feeds. Ask yourself something. How many of those apps and news feeds are tailored for you to hear exactly what you want to hear? And the minute a news feed says something that you don't like or agree with, How often do you just delete that? I don't want to hear that. So we only hear what agrees with us so that in the end, opinion becomes truth. And we swim in an ocean of opinion and a sea of information. That's why we as believers must work hard to develop the discipline of discernment. We must go the extra mile to discern, is what we're reading true? And if I'm not sure if it's true, then I probably shouldn't share it, shouldn't lock it, or shouldn't speak it. Because if I go about sharing things that are not true, and I claim to be a follower of the truth, guess what? I'm undermining my validity as a follower of Jesus Christ. We need to take the time to search things out. And yes, that may mean if I'm not certain, the best thing I can do is what? Say nothing. Or at the very least, give a disclaimer. I've heard this. I'm not sure if it's accurate. Because at stake is the truth of the kingdom. Third thing I would add is this. We as believers, of all people, should be characterized by hope. We are part of a kingdom that is not from this world. And that means this world cannot destroy the kingdom we're a part of. There is this level of fear and anxiety that it seems to be rising. We need to squelch that with the truth of the gospel and the truth of the kingdom that says we are part of a kingdom that cannot be shaken. That means no earthquake can move it, no political uprising can change it, nothing. Think about all the kingdoms of this world that have come and gone. The Roman Empire that stood and condemned Jesus to death, guess what? It's gone. It's dust. The Byzantine Empire that comes next, it's studied in a museum under the the title of archaeology. The British Empire upon whom the sun never sets, guess what? The sun has set. Think about the French Empire, the Third Reich of Germany, all those empires that stated, we are the empire, they are gone, but the kingdom of God stands, has stood, and will forever stand. And you and I, believer, we're part of that kingdom. What have we to fear? What have we to dread? We serve a kingdom that is unending. Every time fear starts to rise in your hearts about things that are happening in our nation, remind yourself, my allegiance is to the kingdom of God, and that will never, ever fade. God, grant us the grace to show the kingdom of truth to a world in desperate need of it. Would you bow with me in prayer? Heavenly Father, help us. Help us, Father, to live the truth.
We need you, Lord. We can't do it on our own. We know our own weaknesses. We know how our, our thinking is corrupted by sin. And Lord, we need you to guide us to truth. Lord, I pray that you would help us to be quick to share the gospel. Quick to point people to the hope of your kingdom. Because as we will soon see, even though Jesus was crucified, he rose from the dead victorious. So Father, we need not fear. Grant this, Lord. And may you be honored and glorified in the name of Jesus. Amen. Mm -hmm.